Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. So did you get Woodstock tickets today? Well, I wasn't going to get Woodstock tickets, but even if I had wanted to, my understanding is that the Earth Day target for making Woodstock 50 tickets available has been postponed for reasons that we can only speculate on. Not that it's a big deal. I, I kind of tend to think that Woodstock 50, I think more people would be going to see the acts rather than for any kind of nostalgia for for Woodstock. It's just a, a, a big event that's actually not even being held in Woodstock. It's going to be held in Watkins Glen, at Watkins Glen, the, uh, I guess the racetrack? I don't know, but that's the weirdest thing because we remember the Watkins Glen Festival and having the Woodstock 50 Festival at Watkins Glen sounds a little bit odd. It sounds wrong. It sounds wrong, yes. I'm looking at the lineup for this, though. Now, when you think about the original Woodstock, we'll talk in a bit later about how we reacted to Woodstock when we were young, because we were too young to go. But when you think about the original lineup, it was full of big stars. And some of them weren't yet big. They were on the way up. And some of them were kind of on the way down. But it was full of big stars. Now, I'm looking at this list of stars, and... There are some I know. I've heard of the Killers, and I think Miley Cyrus is like that Disney actress or something. Well, she's a bit beyond that now. <laughs> okay. She's all grown up. And there's this guy, Santana, who was there 50 years ago, which I think is impressive. Robert Plant. John Fogarty. He was at the original. John Sebastian might have been there. Yeah, John Sebastian was in the original. Dead and Company. They were at the original. So there's a number of artists who are at the original. Country Joe McDonald. Give me an F. And there's a lot of new artists, and I don't really know how many of these new artists are. I don't know where they are on the hierarchy of interesting musicians. <laughs> you have a list of those. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'll have, to, I'll have to ask Siri about that. I do say they have Pussy Riot. Pussy Riot. That's a big deal, I think. It is. Yeah. But they're on the third day down at the bottom after Canned Heat and Hot Tuna. But Canned Heat and Hot Tuna are going to be there, and Hot Tuna was not at the original Woodstock. However... The members of Hot Tuna were because they were in Jefferson Airplane. Or at least two of them. Well, that's true. They play with a drummer. So. Okay. Well, now we've got that settled. Um, you and I were both surprised to find out this morning that Michael Lang, who is the original, one of the original Woodstock promoters, is the promoter of this Woodstock. And he's he's been behind the 94, the 99, and this current uh, revival of Woodstock. I can't but He's 74 years old. If you remember the Woodstock movie, he's the guy with the curly hair and the leather vest and... He must have been, what, he, he, he would have been 24, I guess, at the time, right? Which was probably old for that type of job back then. You know, you think about it now, and it seems like he was only 24, but back then, there were a lot of 20-year-old people making things happen in the music business. Yeah, with the exception of Bill Graham, but yes, he's, well. he's a legend in his own right. I, I think the whole Woodstock thing is interesting. So when Woodstock happened, when I was young, I went to a private school. It was a small private school, and my parents felt that private education was worth the extra money. And in 1969, I came back from the summer vacation in sixth grade. And in this school, we had, from in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, we had, I guess, the equivalent of a homeroom teacher and then different teachers for different subjects. And my homeroom teacher was the English teacher, and he came back that September with a big, long beard and a Nehru jacket. This was a private school attached to a church. We wore the, the jackets and ties and all that. And he was there with his Nehru jacket. 
And he didn't tell us too much about it, but we knew that he had been there and it had been his summer of love a couple of years too late. And I didn't really know much about Woodstock until I got the record. And when did the record come out? Do you remember? Uh, 71, I think, after the film. Yeah, and, and I think I got the record as soon as it came. Was it three or four LPs? Three. Side one and six, side two and five, side three and four. <laughs> yep. It was probably the most influential album of that period for me. I mean, I had been buying Beatles albums, and I think I had, what, the Guess Who music like that. But Woodstock was the first time I heard, what, some 20-odd bands on a three-record set with some really wild music. It was really quite impressive. And I probably went through that, I'm not going to say 100 times, but I just played that over and over and over and over. A friend of mine at the time, I remember, uh, begged his parents for advances on his allowance or something because it was rather a large expenditure for, what were we, 12, 13, uh, you know, to purchase a, a three-record set. First of all, it's highly unusual for a popular rock album to be three records. And we were also, the same way you were, we discovered new music on it, and we were also familiar with some of the music on it. But... um the 10 years after performance on it, for instance, was what led me to buy a 10 years after album. Um, I'd never heard of them. Santana, Jefferson Airplane, Sly and the Family Stone, heard of all them. Their songs were on the radio. But bands like 10 Years After, uh, even Joe Cocker, I don't think, was that had much of a radio presence at that point. No, either. not in the U.S. And it wasn't for a couple years when he had that uh, movie Mad Dogs and Englishmen that he became more of a household name. I obviously was too young to see the Woodstock movie when it came out, but in the late 1970s, when when me and my friends went to these midnight movies in Forest Hills, Queens, Woodstock was there every couple of months. And it's a long movie. It's, what, it's like three hours long, two and a half hours. And it was always enjoyable, even though, you know, you keep seeing the same songs over and over. But it was always enjoyable. There's some great stuff. And it was technically pretty innovative, the, the bit with the double images side by side and all that was actually quite creative i bought the blu-ray when it came out was it eight or ten years ago the definitive director's cut edition with like eight hours of bonus stuff and it was really it was really nice to watch it again in particular because one of the bonus tracks was a 40 minute turn on your love light by the grateful dead which is really quite good the dead felt that they did not do a good performance that they'd never done a good performance for big occasions like that but it really is quite good uh what they did but you know, I'm just looking at the list of, of stuff on the on the record, and you, you you start out with some short songs like Coming Into Los Angeles, Arlo Guthrie, and the Shanana song at the hop, and I Had a Dream, John Sebastian. But as you move on, you get to side four, and you've got Soul Sacrifice by Santana, and I'm Going Home by Alvin Lee. That's probably the side I played the most. Yeah, side four. It only has two songs. Pretty funky. Yeah. And and when you consider, you know, you've got Sly and the Family Stone, you've got Sha Na Na, and of course you've got Jimi Hendrix, which ends the, the record. It was really quite a, an eclectic combination of music. And presumably, uh, you know, this group of musicians that's there now for the 50th is probably just as eclectic. Jay-Z is highlighting the third day. The Killers are highlighting the first, Dead & Company the second. There's a fair number of hip-hop and rap artists, but not that many, whereas there's a lot of real, of the names that I know, a lot of them are real rock bands. As I recall, the, the 94 and 99 Woodstocks were more rock-oriented than uh, hip-hop-oriented, very MTV-oriented albums. I think I have the 99 
CD somewhere. I didn't rip it, so that tells you something about what I thought of it. But <laughs> but it's it's not because I didn't like the bands. I did like I do like alternative music, but um, as a sampler, I just didn't care for it. Well, I'm thinking that that was well. I'm just looking on a- Apple Music, and I'm thinking that the a lot of that stuff might have been grunge type music. Yes, exactly. Yeah, is Limp Bizkit grunge? <laughs> uh, not Raise Against the Machine. No, they're both like uh, rap rock bands. Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> Um, you do know who these not, bands are, right? I've heard of some of them. Okay. I've heard of Dave Matthews' band and Dave Matthews. The Brian Setzer Orchestra, isn't that the guy from Stray Cats? Yes, he does uh, R&B, uh, you know, s- uh, swing, stuff like that. Cheryl Crow, who used to be Lance Armstrong's girlfriend or wife, something like that. The Roots, Bruce Hornsby. Now, Bruce Hornsby, where did I heard of him? Oh, yes, he played with the Grateful Dead for a while. You got one. But there are a bunch of Live at Woodstock albums that show up on Apple Music, and it's true that Jefferson Airplane released one, Joe Cocker. There's one that says Jimi Hendrix, but it looks like it's a bootleg. And if I remember correctly, I think Janis Joplin's performance was one of the first recordings released that wasn't part of the soundtrack or the movie. Yeah, by the way, there's a lot of bootlegs on Apple Music, believe it or not. Sly and the Family Stone, because all of these artists, you know, we, we had one song from most of them, maybe two from a couple of them on the album. But they all played sets of 40 or 50 minutes. The album was essentially a soundtrack to the film. So it wasn't a document of the true of the performance. It was a memento from the movie. Right. And they later released a couple of different versions. And there was a six CD set that Rhino released back in 2009 called Woodstock 40 Years On Back to Yazgur's Farm. And that's got a lot more. It's got Ravi Shankar. It's got Sweetwater. It's got... Chip Monk. Remember him? Chip Monk? Yeah. Isn't Chip Monk the guy that says, get down off the scaffolding? I think it might be, actually, yeah. Yeah. Chip Monk is there quite a bit. Oh, that's why Chip Monk is there, because he's the one... Oh, he gives the stage announcements. I was thinking of Sam Cutler from Guinea Shelter. No, uh, Chip Monk was stage announcements. He's on disc three. He does the track, The Brown Acid is Not Specifically Too Good. Or, for those of you who have partaken of the green acid... You know, you'd think with a name like Chip Monkey, he'd have a high voice, but he actually has a very yes. deep radio voice. <laughs> yeah. You know, whenever I hear a record like that, with that stuff in between, I kind of... Fortunately, they've tracked it, so you can not listen to it, or, you know, delete the tracks after you rip the record. Uh, but... Yeah, so Woodstock, for me, was really interesting, because it, it exposed me to a lot of music because of the movie that was so interesting... It's funny how it's funny. Uh, well, I knew the record before I ever saw the movie. Like you, I didn't. I wasn't old enough to see the movie. It's it's. We were twelve. Yeah. So uh, the first time I saw it wasn't even in a theater. It was uh, I think MTV ran it over a couple of days at one point, and they made it a big deal. Of course, you know they it ran for hours because they had to put commercials in it and things like that. So I seem to remember it being like two two hour parts or something. But it was a big deal. Uh, and I was actually surprised. I mean, I've seen clips of it until then. But uh, I had never seen the full movie. I kind of wonder what the point is of doing a 50th anniversary, other than just making money, obviously. Well, if they can get these tickets sold, maybe they will make a little money. (laughs) (laughs) But these things are tremendous undertakings. I mean, as of this recording, the promoters don't even have the appropriate permits to hold some kind of event like this in Watkins Glen. And then there's all other kinds of considerations that the, the artists have to consider. And then and then what about the people? I mean, it's not 1969 anymore. I'm not sure that, that you know, people are going to want to trek to upstate New York for three days of fun and music or whatever they're going to bill it and, 
you know, at a racetrack. <laughs> I'm not really sure if that's a comfortable place to, you'd want to be. Well, it's also, I, I don't think this is a crowd of people who are going to hitchhike up there and get naked and slide around in the mud. They want comfortable surroundings and cold beer and they don't want the brown acid. They want something better. Although it w- I wouldn't be surprised if they have come be a dirty, filthy hippie and ride on the, the mudslide and for 50 bucks they'll recreate the, uh, you know, that mudslide yeah. from the movie. Or, you know, go lollygag with your significant <laughs> other in, in the hay or the cornfield or whatever they have and, you know, recreate that Woodstock experience. There was much lollygagging yeah. in the movie. There was. That that made it rated yes, R. That's why I wasn't able to see it as a kid. Um, so it wouldn't see? surprise me if they have things like that. But, of course, there's a, probably a lot of good going on, too. A lot of these festivals have, you know, voter registration and health information and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. It's funny what these festivals have become. I think Coachella was just recently took place and there was some article saying that this is no longer a music festival it's just a big money-making thing the sort of big deal over here is the glastonbury festival and i don't know if it lasts a long weekend or a whole week and it's gotten so it's the whole thing is filmed by the bbc and you can watch it all on the bbc iplayer which is their website or app for things that aren't broadcast and it's just all too professional. It's all too clean. And, you know, everyone, the, the whole thing is you go there with your wellies on because it's going to rain and be muddy and you have your tent and it's a rite of passage. But it's so corporate when you think about it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I don't think they'll ever capture that festival feeling that was around in the 60s when they actually had a lot of these festivals. We've talked about that in the past. Um, you know, the West Coast was famous for having all of these music and art festivals. And that's why they decided to have one in New York, because there really weren't that many on the East Coast. Uh, but as you say, now it's just a it's it's like the World Series or, or the Super Bowl or, you know, it's just an event, another event to make sure you're in on. I'm just thinking that like people these days who go to these festivals, they're going to spend. In fact, I, let, let's see how much tickets are. How much is it going to cost to see Woodstock 50? Oh, you can't even see. Tickets on sale soon. Subscribe below for updates. This is going to cost a fortune. Do you remember the, what did they call the one where Dylan, Neil Young, and someone else played out in the desert last year or two years ago? Roger Waters. It was it was hundreds of dollars for a ticket. It was literally, you know, it was not the kind of thing that normal people would be able to go to. So I'm assuming it's going to be the same type of situation, expensive there will be VIP sections, and then there'll be the bits where you can put up your tent for, you know, 100 bucks. But it's kind of a shame. I never went to any of those festivals. I did go to some free concerts in Central Park. I can't remember if I saw the Paul Simon concert where I think there was a million people. There were a number of big concerts there back in the 70s, early 80s. But I never really liked those big things with lots of people, and you never know what the weather's going to do. And, you know, the idea of sleeping out in the mud, I'm sorry. I grew up in a house. Especially if you know there's going to be a movie, a TV show, uh, several albums, uh, and and whatever else from these things eventually. Well, let's be fair. It's not the same. But you know now that everything is going to be filmed and recorded, and you can download the music and see the films and buy the videos and get the T-shirts and the whole thing. Part of the charm of, I think, the original Woodstockers was that nobody expected, nobody knew it was going to happen. Nobody knew how it was going to work. Because it was so big, especially with the the traffic concerns and the and the, the number of people showing up, but um, you know n- the 
the filming was done by you know a small group of a small contingent of guys with handheld cameras they didn't have video the the sound is not that great in general it just really is there were all sorts of stage problems um you hear a lot of stomping on the floor on the stage yeah. and you can hear uh just bad audio throughout the whole recording but i think that's part of the charm i don't think they're yeah. ever going to recapture that um, so if they want to have a big super duper festival for the 50th anniversary, fine. But it's just yeah, obviously it's just not going to be. Yeah, the same. I just remember the end of the film though with Jimi Hendrix playing to a thousand people, two thousand people in that field, just like strewn with sleeping bags and trash and stuff. And that was that really said a lot about the festival, didn't it? All right. So for my next track, I'm going to pick my favorite track from the Woodstock movie and album. It's Soul Sacrifice. I mean, come on, that thing just rips in there. And it just goes wild with, you know, Santana's amazing guitar, but above all that drum solo by Michael Shreve, who was like 17 years old. I mean, I'm not, I'm not one of these drum solo guys who lives for the drum solos, especially because drummers have gotten so sort of obsessed with like having all these things to drum on. And Shreve is there with basically a simple rock drum kit and he just goes wild for a couple of minutes. That to me, was probably the most exciting thing in the film and in the movie soundtrack. It uses the uh, split screen uh, to great effect uh, throughout the movie, and and that's a great cut. I, I, I do enjoy that one. The part of the movie, I mentioned 10 Years After before, and I might as well just pick a 10 Years After album. Um, the one that I bought after seeing Alvin Lee do I'm Going Home is an album called Shh. And, Sorry, uh, it's called what? It's called Shh. Ah, it's spelled S A S S S H or S H H H H, but and and it's a good it's a good ten years after album. It doesn't sound anything like uh, the the hits they had later. It's good uh, blues and straight ahead Alvin Lee playing blues stuff. But I was just talking about the the split screen when they're doing "I'm Going Home." It's three panels of Alvin Lee. You don't see anybody else in the band yeah. at all. Uh, which I thought was really strange because what what he's doing is essentially they're just doing the same song they had done on a previous live album. Even the solo stuff that he does is exactly the same. Another live album by 10 years after I bought many years later, I think it's called 10 Years After Live, he does the same solo that he does on the recording. And I oh, that's that that made me not like Alvin Lee very much because it's like, come on, I want to hear you do some freestyling. But I never actually ever heard a recording where he didn't play what he had already played. And uh, it's one of the things that ruined 10 years after for me because, uh, I, I mean, they really do sound great on some of their early stuff. My usual my usual disclaimer, of course, is I really like their early stuff, but when they became commercial, they kind of got tired of them. <laughs> but that's absolutely true in this case. Their early stuff is very bluesy and almost John Mayall-y, and then later on they became, uh, you know, I'd love to change the world crap, which I didn't really care for. Um, but anyway, that's it's that's while the song on Woodstock that they do, I'm Going Home, is great and fun to listen to, it's kind of disappointing because, as I said, you don't see the band, and you really don't see much of him doing anything spectacular. But it, it is what turned me on to 10 years after and a lot of British blues. So I'll give him credit for that. Well, the Woodstock website has a history section. And under 10 years after, they say, struggling mightily with technical difficulties due to high humidity, the British heavy uh, blues rock band still gave a bravura performance. And they did open with Spoonful and then Good Morning Little Schoolgirl, some classic mm -hmm. blues R&B stuff. Yep. 
Good Morning Little Schoolgirl is is the first song on, uh, or one of the songs on that album. Shh. <laughs> I hate to say it that way. I don't know how else do you say it. Shh. It's spelled shh. <laughs> I can't. I need, there's no other way. <laughs> this was episode number 146 of the next track. Thanks for listening. Your comments are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on the episode page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review, if you feel so inclined, wherever you get your podcast. And if you can't leave a review, recommend us to a few of your friends. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.